Bienvenidos to a special bonus episode of El Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this episode, we sit down with Reverendo Dr. Robert Chao Romero. Dr. Chao Romero is Asian Latino and has been a professor of Chicana O and Asian American Studies at UCLA since 2005. He received his PhD from UCLA in Latin American History and his Juris Doctor from UC Berkeley. He is an award-winning writer publishing 15 academic books and articles on issues of race, immigration, history, education, and religion. And today, he joins us to discuss his upcoming book, Brown Church, Five Centuries of Latinao Social Justice, Theology, and Identity. In our conversation, we explore the cultural and theological riches of the Brown Church. We discuss heroes of the Latinao community and the future the Brown Church envisions. Join us as we listen to Dr. Chao Romero. Robert, welcome to the podcast. How are you? It's a pleasure to join you. I'm really happy this morning. It's my daughter's birthday, so. Ah, happy birthday to your daughter. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. How old does she turn? Double digits. Okay. So she's a 10-year-old today, is that right? That's right. And she'd be entirely embarrassed if she knew that I was saying this. (laughs) We'd sing her happy birthday, but my experience is that I'm terribly off key when I sing that song. So maybe maybe I'll resist the temptation. Sounds good. <laughs> Elizabeth, ¿cómo estás? ¿Qué tal? Good. I'm waiting for uh, summer to hit here or actually spring to hit here in Michigan. Seriously. Um, we're beginning to see some leaves budding on the trees and that sort of thing, but it's still uh, a little chilly here. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Chicago has skipped spring. Uh, the last couple years, but suddenly when we're not allowed to go outside, Chicago decides I'm going to have a wonderful spring season and then everything <laughs> is budding beautifully, but none of us are allowed to go outside. It's, it's, it's a terrible time for spring to be tempting us this way. Robert, uh, are you still teaching? Are you still uh, teaching at UCLA? Yeah. So we are on the quarter system. And so we're kind of mm-hmm. halfway into the last spring quarter. Yeah. So definitely okay. going strong. All right. All right. Well, hey, a few things for the audience. Uh, If uh, you've missed it, make sure to go back and listen to our last three episodes. Uh, We have had Karen Figueroa, the Dean of Chet, on. We have had uh, Obispo Jose Garcia de Jesus, who is of the Church of God of Prophecy, talking about leadership transitions and power. Uh, We've also had an episode where Elizabeth and I kind of recap the things that we've heard. Uh, If you haven't been listening to the Mestizo podcast, make sure to go back and listen to those. Follow us on social media at World Outspoken on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, The Mestizo Podcast is put together by World Outspoken, a consulting ministry preparing the Mestizo Church for cultural change. Uh, And then if you have questions like Anne Mendoza, who asked this, she said, how do you think we encourage the Latinx church to support and encourage long-term missions and missionary careers? If you have a question like that that you'd like us to answer on the Mestizo Podcast, Leave us a message at 312-725-2995. Uh, Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, your city, and your pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. You can also submit the question via the form that's linked on the show notes, uh, so don't hesitate to do it as well. If you want to type out your question, you can do it that way as well. So, On today's episode, we're talking about uh, Robert's book, The Brown Church. Uh, Robert, the first question I have for you, and it's because it it hits close home, it hit me a little different 
because my experience of my faith has been that my grandmother has been very formative for me. Uh, shout out to Abuelita Regina Padilla. I know she's going to be listening to this a little later. But can you tell me about uh, Doña Luz Torres de Romero? Uh, why is the book dedicated to her? Maybe tell us a little, about, a little bit about her. Sure. Um, so my, my Abuelita, and this is kind of like, you know, stirs my emotions because, she, you know, she has since passed on to be with the Lord. But um, she was the the rock of our family. You know, like she would grab the whole family, go to church, you know, our, our Baptist, um, Iglesia Bautista, La Salvador, you know, church. And on Mother's Day, they would have that, that competition for like who has the most kids present. And and because she had nine kids and like a, a gazillion grandkids, <laughs> she'd always win, right? But um, all joking aside, you know, she's the person that taught us, you know, how to love Jesus, how to care for our family. And, you know, she didn't, didn't have all the fancy theological concepts and everything, but she served in the church as a deacon and she taught us to love Jesus. And so that's why I, I dedicate the book to her. That's amazing. Uh, you talk a, a few times in the book about Abuelita theology and how important Abuelitas can be to the, the formation of the church and of God's people, especially in the Hispanic context. And that hit home for me. I, I tell people all the time, I teach at Moody, uh, I teach theology courses, and yet I tell my students all the time, my grandmother, unlike many people that I know, she speaks of Jesus as if she's speaking of someone who's in the room with her. It just sounds like she's talking about someone who's next to her. And she's got a deep love for the Lord. She knows him well. She knows his word. And uh, she has a powerful, rich theological, uh, she's a rich, rich theological well to pull from. And so I'm glad, I'm wondering, you mentioned dichos in, in the book. Are there any dichos from Doña Luz Torres de Romero that you want to, to hit us with to say, these are ones that really stuck out to me, that were really formative to me in my, in my life and career? Oh, uh, well, I guess like, I, I can think of some dichos. Um, I mean, w one that I remember she would say is like, t tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. Yeah. Another, another one is like, like this past week we were making tortillas with my daughter. My daughter's really getting into it. And of course, when you first make tortillas, they're all square and um, cuadrada and all that kind of stuff. And, and but, but I just learned this one that, that she would say, it's okay. It doesn't have to be round because it doesn't need to roll down your throat. <laughs> that's like a mexican mexican dicho that i think that goes along with a tortilla apprentice making there you go dime con quien andas y te diré quien eres that's the spanish of the phrase that you just said the first dicho you mentioned oh okay <laughs> yeah i got hit by that one all the time my mom would hit me with that one my grandmother that one that one was popular in the padilla family uh El <laughs> elizabeth you got any dichos like that any tips that were words of wisdom proverbs that were passed down to you Oh my God, there's so many proverbs, you know, I mean, that definitely was, you know, one of them. Um, the other, I mean, there, there's just so many. I, I can't now, now that you're mentioning it, I can't, you know, all of a sudden come up uh, with, yeah. with another one, but uh, they were all over the place. They were how people spoke to you, uh, how they, you know, el que, no, el que no sigue consejo no llega viejo, you know, if you don't follow um, good counsel, you'll never get to be old, you know, in other words, uh, your life is truncated, right? Because you can't follow in the way, you, you can't learn from other people's mistakes, et cetera, right? So yeah, things like that all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, we're very proverbial, we Latinos. We, we like our Proverbs. We like teaching in Proverbs. It's kind of it's kind of a fun, 
a fun little thing. I, I have a journal where I have been collecting some of these phrases over the last three or four years, just because I don't want to forget them. And I live now in Chicago, so I'd live in a place where, you know, we, we don't use them as often. Hispanics aren't speaking Spanish that way as often here. And so, so I'm writing them down so that I could pass them on to, to later generations. I'm trying to be Robert here and be a bit of a historian for my own family. And so uh, it's been fun to, to collect them. I've been collecting them, bombas, uh, little songs that we sing, just any, any little uh, trinket of the, of the culture. I've been trying to collect it and keep it. Uh, Robert, I was wondering, we're, we're talking about your book, Brown Church. It's 500 years of history. It's remarkably thorough. It's an amazing book. I, I walked away from the book inspired. I walked away from the book moved. Uh, it, it, uh, it tied me to a tradition that often in reality, I, I feel like I'm not the only one when I say this, Latinos don't have this tie to their own uh, theological tradition, to their own church history. And so I felt in, in some ways, welcomed into like a league of legends to a, to a to a room of ancestors, as it were, to to use kind of that that picturesque film language. I was wondering, what's your personal connection to the research? I know it wasn't your PhD project, so I know it wasn't you know an academic pursuit. It seems to me that it was a passion project. You know, what was your personal connection to the research? Sure, you know, it was total passion, total like I never would have expected to write this book, especially part of my academic career. So my first half of my time, I've been a professor at UCLA since 2005. And the first half of my career, you know, I had to like get tenure, right? And so you have to like, you know, write the book that's based on the dissertation and write articles, blah, blah, blah. So my first book was about the Chinese in Mexico, which was also very personal, actually, because my father is from Chihuahua, Mexico, and my mother is from uh, Hubei province in central China. Um, so I, I, that was my first formal sort of project, like a, a history of the Chinese in Mexico. Uh, after I got tenure, um, I had been, you know, practicing um, ministry, you know, um, been a pastor for a number of years. Um, and the, my wife and I, my wife, Erica, and I, we had been working with activist students with our ministry called Jesus for Revolutionaries, you know, for about a decade or so, um, maybe a little less than that. And, and the whole point of the ministry was showing walking with um, young adults to figure out how do you connect Jesus with issues of justice and urban ministry and so on and so forth. Right. But I had always done that on the side and I didn't think that my academic world was going to connect with the ministry world. Um, And so um, after I got tenure, I remember I was talking to one of of my colleagues and I said, I have this idea. I'd like to like study theology, religion, you know, bring that piece of my life into my academic uh, work. And she's like, you should do it. And so with much fear and trembling, I said, okay, <laughs> I'm going to try to do this, God. You know, help me to, to, to bring these two together, my, the ministry piece with the academic piece. And then um, I took like a – I spent a year at Fuller, you know, getting more sort of formal theological training. And I just began to just sort of pray about how to synthesize all of this. And the Brown Church book was the result. That's amazing. So it was the connection between your religious practice, your your faith, and your studies. I am surprised you you were supported by your coworkers uh, in pursuing this. I, I'd love to hear more about that because it sounds like you were pursuing a kind of practical theology that Elizabeth is a huge fan of and a practici- practitioner of herself. Uh, Elizabeth, I mean, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about that connection? What I find interesting is 
that your journey speaks to the very issues that you are talking about in the book. In other words, you were trying to help these young adults find the connection between their religious life and their activist life, right? And we practice the activist life out of whatever vocation we're in is what informs the activist life. And when you try to write this book by integrating your religious life, right? Your life as a minister and your vocation as an academician, you're doing precisely what it is that the young people themselves are trying to do, this integration, right? And I don't want to get ahead of us, but the, the integration takes place, the need for it takes place because of the theology that we have had that has bifurcated these two spheres of life. Um, that doesn't come from us as Latinos. We had to learn that. Uh, we had to learn that by, by having to live in a world that bifurcates things, that pigeonholes things, that puts everything in little categories. We had to learn those categories. They didn't come naturally to us. They're not a part of our dichos, right? They're not a part of our dichos. They're not a part of our theology, our abuelita theology, but we learned that. We had to learn it in order to survive, in order to live in the world that we're in. And so your own journey of trying to bring these two passions together, right? It's, it's the fullness of who you are as a person takes place in the writing of this. I'm so glad that your colleagues did convince you to move forward. Now, the question that uh, Emmanuel asks is important. Based on what, right? You're in academia. Based on what uh, understanding, philosophical based understanding, were you able then to rationalize this to a world who's not going to hear you doing this from a religious standpoint, right? What was the standpoint that you used within your world in order to make these things come together? Sure. Um, I drew from crit critical race theory, which I know is a very controversial topic. Um, but um, in critical race theory, first of all, I know in the Christian world, there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. Um, but um, in critical race theory, there is a there's a, a theory called community cultural wealth. And according to community cultural wealth, it comes from the field of education. And in the field of education, historically, um, teachers were taught in order to make Latino students succeed in school or African-American students succeed in school, basically make them middle-class white students, right? <laughs> like, that's basically, I think, like the approach, like assimilate into those middle-class white values and then they'll succeed. Um, a Chicana education scholar by the name of, of Tara Yoso, who was at the University of Michigan and now is at UC Riverside, um, she framed this concept with another UCLA colleague, uh, Danny Solorsono, of community cultural wealth. And they said, um, basically, that traditional approach is wrong. Instead of trying to you know, force us into a mold, people of color, into a, students of color into a, a white mold, we should start with the cultural wealth that already exists the community cultural wealth that we bring uniquely to the university to the K through 12 system. And, and they identified certain aspects of that community cultural wealth, like distinct um, familial capital, um, distinct uh, linguistic capital and so on and so forth. Um, there was another scholar by the name 
of Lindsay Perez Huber. Lindsay Perez Huber, also an education scholar trained at UCLA under Danny Solorzano. And she interviewed um, undocumented students, um, college students, um, Latina undocumented college students. And she asked them, like, what helps you persevere, right? And, and so she was operating upon this community cultural wealth framework by, 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 by Yoso. But she found in her interviews that another type of capital surfaced when she interviewed them, and that was spirit, spiritual capital. So these undocumented Latinas said, oh, my faith in God is what sustains me, right? And she sort of added to that framework, spiritual capital. So I took that and I said, wait a minute. As Latinas, Latinos, we have, we have 500 years of community cultural wealth. And at the heart of that community cultural wealth is our spiritual capital. And I started, and I started to dig into more into the history. And I realized, oh, my gosh, from the colonial period to Jim Crow to the current moment, faith I mean, it's not surprising, but faith has been at the center of our community cultural wealth, our spiritual capital. And th that was my my entry point to kind of to bridge um, ethnic studies, Latino studies and, and Latino theology and history and all of that. And I think that you do an excellent job of it. And I think the contribution that you make is really important because you do two things. First of all, we're not aware of the fullness of our community cultural wealth. You add to that. You contribute to that for your reader. And so I think it's an excellent resource for us so that we can fully claim our community cultural wealth. But the other thing that you do is that you help to define what, to, to redefine what so far we have thought was our community cultural wealth. Let me explain. That is that we have received this faith and you, you say it clearly, we received a faith that came, what came to us through the filter of colonization. And while it has been contextualized by us and by our practice, and while God and the Holy Spirit have moved us to a greater truth than how it first came to us, still, it is important for us to unpack the colonial pieces. And I think that you do that really well in this book by showing us who are the advocates, what were their arguments, and decolonizing starts there with those arguments. And so we begin to unpack and to decolonize the, me the message of the gospel that has come down to us, which the way that we practice it has been truncated because we don't have the fullness of the community cultural wealth of the gospel and of our forefathers and foremothers in the faith who began this work way back when. That brings up, a, uh, Robert, that brings up a question for me related to who the book is for. Uh, honestly, as I was reading it, it contributed to me, as Elizabeth said, this wide connection to my own history. I felt tethered once more to, to my people. And, and in that way, it was, a, it was a beautiful connection for me. But as Elizabeth suggested, and as you suggested earlier, is this book a corrective to ethnic studies? Is it, is it intended as a, I have a few hypotheses, right? So I'm going to hit you with a couple of them. But that's the first one that I thought of as I, as I read the book, I thought, is this book supposed to be for those who are pursuing ethnic studies? Uh, what would you say to that? I think that there's several intended audiences. Um, <clears throat> the first is for um, Latino, Latina, 
young adults who are wrestling with how do you reconcile faith in Jesus with this colonial past, with this desire to have an identity centered in our um, Latino cultural practices, and those who experience like this, this what I call in the book, uh, the spiritual activist borderlands. So many of us, we feel like, okay, where do we fit, right? Okay, I'm Latino, I'm Latina, I, I love Jesus, I grew up in the church. But then when I go to the church, oftentimes, and I present issues of justice, like, okay, you know, uh, and I say, you know, pastor, you know, we should care about issues of, of immigration or education or public health. A lot of times we, we are received with uh, questions like, oh, you know, and, and, and the, the statement perhaps that that's not the gospel, like that's somehow political and that's not the gospel. On the other hand, when we go to activist circles or oftentimes in ethnic studies and those spaces where justice is centered, if we tell them, oh, but I, I, I love Jesus, most of the time we're told, well, you can't be an activist and care about just and care about Jesus and, and Christianity because Christianity is simply the colonizer's religion. And so as a consequence, we're stuck in this borderlands in between oftentimes get the faith of our youth and activism. And so the first audience for this book are those folks who are wrestling with that borderlands. Um, I wanted to share briefly, like briefly, this is a message I received from a student just in this past month that I think um, exemplifies this, this borderlands experience. And this person said, and I've changed a little bit of the details to protect their identity, but they said, as, as a Latina, Latino growing up as the child of an undocumented pastor in the Midwest, my experience was much different from those who surrounded me. I felt that I could not identify with my peers and I always felt out of place. My white peers accepted me in the way that I stood right in being from their denomination, but I was not accepted because of my skin color, my race, or my father's undocumented status. I wanted to believe in what my family and church taught me as truth, but I slowly drifted away from my beliefs as a result of the testimony I received from the Anglo church and their members. I would ask myself, how can I identify with such ignorant people? There was more hate and resentment that grew in my heart. Even to this day, those same Protestants referred to us as wetbacks, beaners, and spicks. I find myself conflicted with my identity. I feel at times that one does not go with the other. So I think that, and again, I just received that in the last month. So this student is articulating that deep inner struggle of being um, um, torn between ways, right? Um, torn between ways, you know, to, to use actually an Aztec phrase, right? Nepantla, torn between ways. Where do I fit? Where do I belong? And the book is, prime. that's the first audience. Second audience is for, uh, on the academic level also, for ethnic studies and critical race theorists who do a great job of identifying issues of structural and social injustice, a great job, but have totally neglected the role of faith in that struggle. And so I want to open up a space to be able to examine the role of faith within um, Chicano, Latino history, ethnic studies, and so on and so forth. Um, I was just um, looking at an article recently, and, and one of the amazing um, kind of pioneers of critical race theory is Kimberly Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw, right? Um, and her notion of intersectionality, which is also highly controversial, but there was an article by an African-American um, law professor or an attorney who published an article in, in a Rutgers, in Rutgers Law Journal, like a very prestigious journal, talking about 
how critical race theory has neglected the very faith practiced by most of the people that they that they're, that they're trying to represent. So in other words, like you know, um, again, ma- amazing insights from Kimberly Kimberly Crenshaw. I have so much respect for her, right? But 90% of the African-American community is Christian, but there's no mention of the Christian faith in those writings. And the same thing in terms of uh, ethnic studies and, and for amongst Latinas and Latinos, right? Um, and so that's the second audience. Third audience is for our sisters and brothers um, in majority culture seminaries and churches, denominations, who are looking for how, how do we incorporate um, God-given community cultural wealth and practices right into our spaces and try to try to diversify those spaces. I think there are some folks who are, are resistant to that. But in my experience, I think many, many of our white sisters and brothers are sincere about wanting to do that. And for those who, who are want to do that, I think this book is also written for them to show how they can begin to have a different ecclesial imagination. That's wonderful. The The book does strike at all of those groups in, in, in at various points and in various ways, which I really appreciated. Uh, I do want to talk about the title because it seems to me that the title of the book, it, right out of the gate, it, it introduces a way to strike at all of those groups, right? It, it introduces the majority culture group to say, hey, there, there's a kind of church. You, you talked about it being an ecclesial imagination. There's a kind of church you haven't known about. So those of us that have been feeling in that borderlands, it gives us language to say, hey, I'm not in a borderlands. I'm actually tied to a tradition that has existed for a long time. Uh, for those of the... Uh, those individuals that have been in ethnic studies, it's, it's essentially saying, hey, there is a brown theology that has been a part of this justice movement for a long time. And you, you may need to rethink uh, its role in the very thing that you're studying. And so it seems to me that the, the very name of the book, Brown Church, introduces a kind of integrated approach to addressing all of these audiences. And so one of the questions that I had that I thought it'd be important for others to hear is, who is the Brown Church? For sure. So the Brown Church <clears throat> or Brown Church has several several levels of meaning that hit those different audiences. At its most fundamental level, the Brown Church refers to the 500-year social justice tradition in Latin America, Christian social justice tradition in Latin America and amongst U.S. Latinas and Latinos. And I should say, too, that the Brown Church is older than the Protestant Church. That's going to surprise a lot of people. So Martin Luther right nailed his 95 theses in 1517, but the Brown Church was born in 1511, right? So the Brown Church, this, this tradition of, of Latino, Latino, Latin American followers of Jesus pursuing justice, it, pre- it preceded, again, our contemporary divides. Uh, that's one thing. So, on the one, so the first meeting, again, this 500-year history of social justice amongst Latino Christians. Um, the second meaning uh, uh, related to sort of I guess the term brown, maybe to jump on that for a second, is that brown refers to the mestizaje, the cultural mixture, right, that this podcast is named after. That's another meaning. Um, and how as, as Latin American dis- descent people, yeah, we have such beautiful um, community cultural wealth in our blood, right? So it, it's talking about that. That's brown. Thirdly, um, brown is a symbol of racial liminality in the United States. So kind of racial liminality defined as this in racial in-betweenness that we as Latinas and Latinos who come from so many different backgrounds, right, that we occupy in U.S. society. Brown, it's not li- literally referring to brown. I mean, I'm literally, I'm literally brown, but like not all of us are literally brown. Some of us are super huerito. Some of us are Asian like myself. Also, some are, you know, 
Afro-Indigenous descent, all kinds of everything, right? Jewish, everything. So it's not like a literal brown, but like it's the way in which in U.S. society we have for the past several hundred years been situated in between um, the social categorizations of white and black. And in that in-between space, we followed Jesus, we've done church, we've experienced discrimination, and we fought back. Today's episode is sponsored by one of my go-to publishing houses for theological resources, InterVarsity Press. InterVarsity Press serves those in the university, the church, and the world by publishing resources that equip and encourage people to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord in all of life. IVP books educate, they refresh, and empower those who are seeking reconciliation and justice in their communities and around the mundo entero. Since they began publishing books in 1947, IVP has been committed to elevating the voices of women and authors of color like my co-host Elizabeth Conde Frazier and our guest Robert Chao Romero. For more information, visit ivypress.com slash readwomen and ivypress.com slash diversity matters. If you're interested in purchasing Brown Church, use the link in the show notes and the promo code MESTIZO for 30% off and free shipping on IVP's site. This promo code ends on June 30th, so don't waste time. Again, if you want to purchase the book Brown Church, use the link in the show notes and the promo code MESTIZO for 30% off and free shipping. I could see it in Elizabeth's eyes. She was ready. She had this. She had, she's coming with the with the insight. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Well, here's the thing that um, the different audiences are going to receive this book in really different ways, right? Um, it's revolutionary to say that the Brown Church started in 1511, and to all of a sudden um, decentralize for the dominant majority church and especially the protestant church to decentralize them from thinking that they are the authors of our faith okay and uh, from wanting to erase our historical cultural memory that came before our becoming protestants i mean that's that's part of the 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 colonizing piece right and so for Latin Americans, we had two colonizing pieces, right? We had the, the Spaniards and then we had Protestantism and uh, the Americans, right? Who came in, the North Atlantic missionaries, etc. Those are two different colonizing pieces. As a matter of fact, in some of the literature, when they were speaking about um, evangelizing us, they spoke about Americanizing us. And they used the two terms interchangeably as if there were no difference between them, right? So this is going to be, you know, revolutionary and there will be some resistance, right? Um, so I want to hear from Emmanuel, actually, before, uh, because you've, you've clearly stated what the purpose of this book is and the different audiences that are going to receive it. I believe that for um, all of us who read it, there's going to be a perspective transformation piece that takes place. This is a book that you have to read in community. This is a book that you have to read with with people who have differences about how they see the book, with the very different audiences that you have just mentioned, that we read that book with those different audiences and that we speak to each other because the book does lend itself for us to think about the racial pieces that have played out here, 
as well, right? And for us to finally say what we're really feeling deep down inside, this book is going to bring out deep pieces inside of us that we've never known how to put our finger on. And all of a sudden you come, you, you, you bring to us these arguments, you bring to us this rich heritage. And just for us to think about why on earth didn't anybody ever open my eyes to this before? Why is this a hidden piece? Why is this not part of my education? Be it theological education, be it education, you know, for my profession. Why is this not part of anything like that? Right? So that in itself, begins this journey of perspective transformation and of coming to new places. And you can't stand in a new place unless you find support from others, right? I need to read this book with you, with Emmanuel. And, and just as we're doing now, we have to talk about why it's important to us, what it does for us, how it makes us to, to move forward in different ways, how it helps us to address our present context, how it inspires us, how it enlarges our abuelita theology pieces, right? So, Emmanuel, you're teaching at a very conservative space, and there, there will be in your space, and I'm just going to say this out loud, there will be in your space both Latinos and non-Latinos who, because they're ignorant of this piece, are going have formed some real theologies with those theologies, they have formed parameters, tight parameters around what we allow and don't allow ourselves to engage. Will you teach this book in your class? And how will you deal with not so much your students? Because I, I imagine your students being much more open, right? You're the professor. They're going to be open and you're passionate and you have really creative ways. But how are you going to engage your colleagues when they sit down in the department meeting? They go, Emmanuel, what the hell are you doing? You're Go becoming ahead, Elizabeth. a heretic. You're asking me the hot questions, hot takes. Listen, uh, Robert's over here laughing. He's like, mm, this ain't my business. I'll let him answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me say this. Uh, the book talks about conscientización, right? Be, be, becoming woke or aware. And, and I think that for me, this book, along with Justo's book, Mañana, Aeth as a community, right? Being able to show up and meet Justo and meet you, Elizabeth, and sort of what led me on this road to pursue mestizo theology. I think I've been on this road of conscientización, of becoming woke to my own culture and my own traditions for a while now. And, and that has come up in my teaching a few times already. So, so thank the Lord, praise, praise God that I think Many of my colleagues wouldn't be surprised. They've seen me bring up Justo in my classes and in, in conversations with them. They've seen me bring up you, Elizabeth, and talk about uh, nuestras hermanas y, y mujerista theology, right? And so, so one, I think I've rocked the boat enough where people know, okay, okay, that's Emmanuel. He's going to bring that kind of stuff up. So that's part of it. But the other part of it that I think uh, is going to be helpful with this book in particular is this thing is thorough. I mean, this thing goes into the historical details in a way that I think... You're going to throw people in the water. You're not just rocking the boat. Yeah, I think it legitimizes it, though. That, that's what I find beautiful about this book. It, it legitimizes some of that historical... Uh, it gives weight to the theology by giving it a history. Right? That's always the claim. Right? Many of my colleagues will say, yeah, but okay, this is new theology. You're bringing up new concepts. So this is relatively modern. For what Robert offers 
people like me in conservative context, what he gives me is, is teeth to argue from, right? To say, no, 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 no. This isn't new. This has been developing for 500 years. It's actually older than the Protestant movement you know, right? Uh, Europe isn't the only place where theology develops such that we have this rich inheritance that we can pull from. And so in some ways, I feel emboldened to, to share further, to share more clearly, more precisely from my theological tradition, as it were, because this book gives me some teeth, gives me history to pull from. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's part of it. Of course, it's going to create emotional reactions. I don't know how to, I don't know how to read this book without an emotional reaction. I, you know, I said I was inspired, but there were parts where I was like, ooh, that's things a little. <laughs> now, I, I was going to ask Robert here, and, and maybe this is a good way to transition back to, to Robert on this, but his metaphor of using the Sadducees, Herodians, Essenes, Zealots, that kind of thing. That metaphor of, of using Jesus's time and the different categories of Jewish, uh, of Jewish people to reframe the Latino community, that, that hit, right? That, that stung a little bit in the sense that I think I grew up in a, basically in a scene environment, uh, uh, an environment that said, let's just separate from the culture. Let's get out of the infighting of all of this. Let's put our heads down and worry about our spirituality. Robert, I do want to ask you, can you tell us a little bit, I, I hinted at it here, Maybe can you give us a brief summary of that metaphor of the Sadducees, Herodians, Scenes, and Zealots? Maybe explain how you connect Jesus' day and those characters in the Bible to modern-day Latinos. Because I want to know, how do you intend, let's say, the Sadducees and Herodians? How do you intend for them to read the book? How do you intend for them to receive it? Sure. <laughs> I think I, I want to first start, start off by saying I love the church. I love the global church and the local church. And my, the goal of this whole book, and I pray by God's grace the rest of my life, is, is, is the beloved community of Jesus that comprises everybody, every ethnic group, right? But there are such long, deep-seated tensions that we need. There's a lot of things we need to work out, and that's not going to happen in one, one year, one month, one book. But I hope that the book allows us to enter into that messy dialogue so that we can come closer to each other in Jesus. So I want to make that, that background. Now, in terms of your specific question, <clears throat> um, Latino theologians, Latino theologians have asked, why does the Bible say so much that Jesus was from Galilee? <laughs> why, why all this discussion, you know, Jesus was, was from Galilee. So when God came in human flesh, God chose to be raised and to, and to, launched his movement from this place called Galilee to do most of his ministry from this place called Galilee. And Latino theologians um, like Orlando Costas, like um, Virgilio Elizondo have been asking this and, and Elizabeth and others, you know, for many years now and have, and what many Latino, Latina theologians have said is that Galilee was the hood of its day. Galilee was the hood, right? It was like to speak in LA terms. It was South LA, it was South Monrovia, it was Northwest Pasadena, and you know I, you could you could, or but for that matter, Galilee was also the most rural, poorest white place in Iowa, right? Galilee was like this marginalized space that was far from the center of power in Jerusalem, the centers of religious, political, economic power. And one Latino theologian frames what he what he calls the, the Galilee principle. Those that human beings reject, God calls his very own. 
those that human beings reject, God calls his very own. So first of all, that as Latinas and Latinos, many of us who come from those marginalized backgrounds, it gives us, us, grace, us great hope because Jesus is where many of us were from. Right? And it reveals this prioritization in God's heart that God loves everybody, but there's a special concern for whoever is most on the margins. Now, that being said, um, Galilee was not also like the hood of its day, but it was also a colonized space. So the Jewish people, as your listeners will know, were, were at that time colonized by the Romans, right? The biggest, baddest empire that's probably ever lived, right? So was, there was this political empire. There were these cultural pressures from Greek and Roman society. Most Galileans were, were, were poor and struggling because of like oppressive um, temple taxes and Roman taxes and and Galilee, in fact, was known as like a hotbed of resistance, right? It's like Berkeley or something. <laughs> Galilee was like that. So in response to those circumstances of Galilee, right, um, impoverished, oppressed, culturally marginalized, all these things, there were people that responded to that situation in different ways. One way, as you mentioned, was to retreat. The Essenes, right, the Essenes, their, their model was like, let's just – get away from all this craziness, right, of, of Roman Empire and <clears throat> corruption within our own community, and let's do our thing, right? Like the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of thing, right? Like that's like the Essenes, right? As your listeners will know. Let's, let's, let's retreat. That's one approach. Another approach was that of, of the Pharisees and the Zealots. And in the time of Jesus, those known as the, as the Zealots largely kind of overlap with, with the Pharisees, right? Um, you can read like N.T. Wright talks about that. And um, the approach, their approach was pray hard and sharpen your swords. That's what N.T. Wright says. <laughs> like, like live a life of moral purity, but get ready to fight. And at the right time, Jesus will allow us to just, I mean, God will allow us to just take over our, our enemies, right? Um, and then the Sadducees and the Herodians kind of, again, it's a little more, there's more nuance to, more nuance to it than this, but I'll just say it this way, like, their approach generally, right, was like compromise. Let's get in bed with the Romans, right, so that we can preserve our power and our privilege, right? If they keep us as high priests, hey, we're good, right? We'll do our part here and there to try to help out, but like we're going to preserve, right? Um, and Jesus offered the fourth way. Jesus, when he, when, when he walked this earth, did not side with any of those approaches, right? He created the fourth approach, right? The kingdom of God is here. Love your enemies, right? Bless those that curse you, right? Self-sacrifice, right? Follow me to the cross. And here is this God's kingdom that is open to all, but but first to the most marginalized of the world. Uh, and that was Jesus's movement. And today in Latino culture, we have expressions, and all, it's part of all of us. I mean, none of us is perfect, but like we have examples of those different approaches too. Those who would just withdraw and say, okay, I'm just going to live a personal life of, of, of spirituality and piety, but I'm not going to involve myself with affairs of the world. We have those who like, who would like say, okay, let me support this president or that president. And even though they're passing all these laws that hurt the Latino community, that's okay. I'll try to speak into it whenever I can, but largely, largely leave the systemic problems intact. And then you have like the, you know, um, the activists, again, I'm an activist too, but not in that sense of like, who's, who might slap a little bit of Jesus onto some some um, politically progressive frameworks, but Jesus is not at the center, right? and it's more like I'm, I'm going to fight um, kind of 
that type of approach sort of, and, and, and I'm not really in it for everybody. I'm going to, I'm in it for my own people. Right. So, um, and then I hope that this book shows how we can learn from that. And again, for all of us, especially myself, you know, I'm, I'm very far from perfect. I'm a sinner. I'm imperfect. I'm, I make a lot of mistakes, but like we can strive towards correct self-correction. And I think that the Latino church community, we have all those approaches there, but, but, but we really need to rethink and recalibrate. El episodio de hoy fue hecho posible con la ayuda de nuestros amigos de InnoVarsity Press. InnoVarsity Press sirve a aquellos en la universidad, la iglesia y el mundo entero con la publicación de recursos que equipan y alientan a las personas que siguen a Jesús como Salvador y Señor. Los libros de IVP educan y empoderan a quienes buscan la reconciliación y la justicia en nuestras comunidades y en el mundo entero. Desde que comenzaron a publicar libros en el 1947, IVP se ha comprometido a elevar las voces de las hermanas y autores de color, como nuestra hermana Elizabeth Conde Fraser y nuestro colega Robert Char Romero. Para obtener más información visite ivypress.com slash readwomen y ivypress.com diversity matters. ¿Estás interesado a comprar Brown Church? Usando el enlace en las notas del programa y el código de promoción MESTIZO, recibirás 30% de descuento y envío gratis a través del sitio de IVP. Esta promoción expira el 30 de junio, así que no esperes. Si estás interesado en comprar a Brown Church usando el enlace en las notas y el código de promoción MESTIZO, recibirás 30% de descuento y envío gratis a través del sitio de IVP. I think that um, this book not only invites the Latino community, but the community that brought the gospel to us to relook at their theology and their practice. And where it becomes, uh, I don't want to say controversial, but where it becomes um, prophetic and difficult is that not only are Latinos going to be able to reimagine their uh, cultural and religious identity, but I think that people from a dominant culture who read this book are going to have to also reimagine their religious identity and are going to have to ask critical questions about how their cultural identity has gotten in the way of their religious um, identity, of what the gospel truly does say, right? That they've read the gospel through that particular cultural lens. And that I think is also important. And so while you speak to these different um, divisions in religious thought, of the times of Jesus, they pertain to the dominant culture just as well. Because the Pharisees are those who maintain a particular tradition and they maintain it at the cost of others. They, they keep laws, etc., that don't benefit the people, right? And um, that's the kind of expression that we've seen where you have the white church um, going for that wall uh, because they have to maintain 
particular understandings of law and order. Um, you have them sort of not wanting to look and be critical of moral pieces except for abortion and homosexuality and not understanding that moral issues are also about how you oppress the poor and the stranger. And so you're putting this front and center as a moral piece as well. Robert, you bring up in the book uh, several figures, uh, Montesinos, Las Casas. Those are some of the obvious ones that many of our, our listeners may already know. Uh, but then you bring up some figures that I had never heard of, Gracilazo, uh, uh, Sor Juana Ines de la Cruz. Uh, there's a few that you bring up that, that surprised me. All of them have a kind of social justice bent, and some of them have uh, some serious training, training in the classics, training in uh, some historical figures in church theology. Uh, some of them have educations that would mirror that of Martin Luther and some of the guys that, that I know at least some of my colleagues would say, no, you got to study those guys if you're going to know if you're going to do theology well. Um, but, it, but in all cases, in all the figures that you bring up, there's a kind of interdisciplinary study that they do. Um, and the book itself reflects a kind of interdis interdisciplinary study. Talk to me about why that approach to studying theology is important to you. Yeah. Um, I think this is like what, what, what um, Dr. Quinta Fraser was saying earlier. Um, when you experience day-to-day -day suffering, you can't just compartmentalize your thoughts. Right? Um, it's not just about, I, you know, if, if you're suffering and your community is suffering, your family is suffering, you can't say, you can't say, oh, these are the packages, this is the package of ideas that I believe and it's floating somewhere in the universe, but this is my daily life. It's all interconnected, right? And so I think that like, from that starting point of, of, of trying to figure this out and trying to improve the daily lives of our families and communities, you can't help but be interdisciplinary, right? So <laughs> I think that that's what helped me. I think I'm not a formally trained theologian. I mean, I'm an ordained pastor like many of us, ordained in the hood, right? Pentecostal circles, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like a like an undocumented um, construction worker. Like I don't get paid the big bucks. I don't have the official license, but I could probably build a house. <laughs> Because I, you know, because by God's grace, like I've read the Bible like 18 times, you know, like through from cover to cover and so forth, right? And listened to thousands of sermons. But anyways, that being said, like I came at it first from like as a the pastoral perspective of like you know seeing the suffering of students, learning from the wisdom of of students in their communities, seeing the real stuff in society, and from there, then I you know I, I, I of course went to scripture as my number one sort of source, but like. In order to understand all those other issues of education and public health and and all those things, immigration, I had to like put my lawyer hat on, right? I had to learn about the history of laws, right? I had to all these things, right? I had to like go help in clinics or you know write letters of recommendation for first gen Latino law students who were applying to medical school. All those things, right? I, I had to serve on you know committees in the UCLA School of Education, you know, um, trying to help. Latino students get ahead. And so um, I think that like, in order to really understand, and now, now I'm just like vibing on um, Sor Juana Ines de la Cruz. And Sor Juana Ines de la Cruz, again, she lived in, in Mexico, like around the, around the 1600s, 1700s. She's considered the first feminist, right? That's, but that's, that's, that's a label that's placed on her, and, but it's very appropriate, right? But um, she was a nun, right? And dedicated her, her life to learning and to, you know, 
challenging patriarchy and everything. But in back then, 400 years ago, she said, because she, because she was also sort of criticized for studying like the humanities and what we'd call the social sciences, right? They had different language for that. Then people told her, why don't you just study theology? <laughs> just, just study that, that other stuff that's profane, right? And she said, how can I understand the most important text, the Bible, unless I have background in mathematics and science and poetry and literature? So, so in other words, to use their language, to understand the ultimate science of theology, you need to understand these other disciplines as well. That's really interesting. Uh, I have a kind of easy question for you related to the figures. Was there a favorite one that you studied? You brought up Sor Juana de la Cruz. Was there one that you thought, man, I really loved researching this particular figure? Oh, gosh, there's so many. But um, <clears throat> I think that, you know, Sor Juana is amazing. But there's one figure that I'll, it's hard to say what's my favorite, but Juan Poma de Ayala. His name was Juan Poma de Ayala. So he was um, from what we now call Peru, you know, Peru. He was an indigenous, um, from an indigenous um, royal family. He lived in the generation of the conquest in, in Peru, right? And he wrote like this thousand page tome, interdisciplinary tome, right? Where, and Spanish wasn't even his first language, right? You know, he, and he, he combined theology, Bible, with like his historical accounts of all the abuses of the Spaniards and like what we would call like, you know, social justice, like kind of um, policy kind of things. Like he called out like the, the Spanish government officials. He called, he, he, he drew from indigenous history to sort of um, even argue that Jesus had come and shared the gospel in Peru 1500 years before. <laughs> and and, and that, that's an interesting sort of side note where, where um, his, he claims that, um, that St. Bartholomew came, one of the original apostles came to Peru and shared the gospel in Peru. And, and he describes the story and all, all this, uh, these miraculous accounts. And apparently, even in like the 1500s in Peru, there was like this big stone cross that had been there for like over a thousand years. And he said, St. Bartholomew, that was the miracle of St. Bartholomew. But anyways, we can talk about the historicity of that or not. But, but my main point is that, you know, 400 years ago, this, in, this straight up, you know, indigenous author, like he just frames this interdisciplinary debate to call up the Spanish conquest. But what's interesting, he doesn't reject Christianity. Right? He says, I like Jesus, <laughs> but I don't like this, this terrible colonial rule. We should be able to rule ourselves. So it's very interesting, right? And of course, he's not a perfect character either, but that's one of my favorite because he's so interdisciplinary and he's straight on indigenous, right? It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. Was there one that you left on the cutting room table that, that you thought, man, I wish I could have included this person, but I just ran out of room? I did have to do some cutting. <laughs> and one of the cutting that I did was um, there's a character like she's known as Latina Poblana, Mira Catarina, Latina Poblana. And basically, quick history during the, the, the colonial period period in Latin America, right from the 1600s, 1500s to about the 1800s, you had this transatlantic uh, commercial movement between um, Mexico and Latin America and Spain and the Philippines, right? And it was called the, the Manila Galleon Trade. Spanish merchants would, would take Mexican and Peruvian silver, ship it over to the Philippines and buy 
Chinese luxury items from Chinese merchants in the Philippines, like silk and pottery and all these kind of things like that. And, and the Chinese merchants would take the Mexican silver, the Spanish merchants would take all those luxury items and 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 take it in those big ships, like like pirates of the Caribbean, right? The kind that get robbed by pirates, right? And this, this trade happened for hundreds of years. And as part of that trade, um, many Asian cultural items came to Latin America, things that we take for granted, like uh, rice, coconuts, mango, um, the Guayavera shirt is one theory, the Guayavera shirt, um, La China Poblana, like, which is like the, the dress that in Mexico that, that women wear, the colorful dress, right? There's, there's all this, there was all this movement of, of, of papel picado, firecrackers, all these things, M many, many things. That's a whole conversation, right? But all these items flowed back and forth. But another thing that happened was that it's estimated that up to 100,000 Asians came to Latin America during the colonial period. Up to 100,000, 40 to 100,000, something like that. And so Asians came from India, from Korea, from Japan, from China, from Japan, you know, all these places to Mexico and Latin America. And one of the people, one of the most famous um, Chinos from Latin America, and I should say I should say that just like today, you know how Chino is used as like a, basically to mean Asian? That started 500 years ago. Didn't matter if you're, you know, if from India, Korea, wherever you were called a Chino, right back then, you know, 400 years ago or so. But one of the people that came across was Mira Katarina, and she was of, of South Asian background, and she was kidnapped in her native land, taken to the Philippines, and sold as a slave on the Manila galleon trade, brought over to Mexico, where she was a Chino slave, and. Um, her, her, her Spanish owner, sadly, who was also a priest by the name of Suarez, he wanted to force her to marry another Chino slave. And she said, I can't marry him. I'm married to Jesus. I'm married to Jesus. And she became like, like this, one of, the, one of the most famous church mystics, Christian mystics in Puebla, Mexico, right? Um, and all the, the rich like Spaniards would come to visit her because of her kind of spiritual healing powers and the visions that she would see. And if you ever, if you ever visit Puebla, Mexico, I've never been there, but I've just you know, heard about this. In the churches, they have these beautiful Baroque heavenly visions on the ceilings. Those are the types of visions that she would have, right? Um, and um, so she was like this amazing, like Asian saint, basically, right, if you will, like in, in colonial Latin America. Um, and, she was also like a contemporary of Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz as well. Um, but when she died, um, according to tradition, this might not be true. According to tradition, um, when, she, when she died, um, her fellow nuns wanted to bury her in clothing from her native India. So they, they, they dressed her in like silk, colorful kind of clothing um, because they thought, well, hey, she's, you know, um, Latino Poblana Mira is about to go see, is about to meet her husband Jesus, right? So we want her to look nice, right? <laughs> so, and, and basically, so she was buried. And again, according to tradition, that costume that she wore became Latino Poblana that is still in Mexico today, right? The, the most popular dress. But um, the way that I view her is like she resisted this one woman <laughs> from South Asia resisted this whole colonial structure in the best way that she could, right? 
through Jesus. <laughs> and as far as I can tell, again, you know, Jesus really reciprocated, right? Um, and she earned the respect of all those colonial folks. And she earned so much respect that when she died, they tried to make her a saint. But the, the Catholic hierarchy resisted. And there, are, and there are several biographical accounts on her life. But anyways, that's, that's someone that got cut out because of just space. But I hope to write about her at some point. I'm going to challenge you to do so because me dejaste fuera una mujer. <laughs> right? You left the woman out, bro. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> women have had to, you know, when you write about her, talk about how it is that women may not uh, have always had the way of being as activist as men because of the positions that they were or weren't in. And so there's that extra layer, right? So perhaps she couldn't have been uh, the one to write letters and advocate and so forth. But like you just mentioned, she did find a way to give expression to that resistance um, and to create community around that. And when she resisted, then there was the openness of the spiritual power that takes place and how it nurtures the community. So please bring the gender piece in there because I think it's really important. Sure, um, and thank you. It's great to hear those, those firsthand accounts. Um, I think that the Brown Church movement has been so, it's just organic. I, the way that I view it is like, it's like as Latin American people, as Latino, Latinos, we've experienced so much injustice and the Holy Spirit has moved in our midst. And I think that movement of the spirit in issues of justice in our community transcends denominations, fine theological um, peculiarities. Not, I'm not saying that in a negative sense. And so I think that that's, it's like, that's really what the book is trying to do is to show, well, how has the Holy Spirit moved through, you know, through Christ in Latin America and amongst U.S. Latinos, and it has, and you have to include both the Catholic and the Protestant side, because otherwise, if, if you exclude the Catholic side, then honestly, most of the time the Holy Spirit wasn't moving. Then, if, if, if it was just the Protestants, and so I think that, um, but I know that 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 is a might be a, a difficult barrier for some to, to kind of embrace the Catholic piece. Um, I, I love Misión Integral. I think that is probably my favorite um, theological framework of the book. Um, as you've mentioned, um, Dr. Elizabeth, um, Mission, Mission Integral um, emerged in the 70s, 80s in Latin America in response to all the horrible abuses of dictators and poverty and all these things. And um, Mission Integral was a group of, of indigenous Latin Americans I'm glad you mentioned Orlando Costas and um, Padilla, Escobar, and many others who they were trained in the United States, like at you know, Wheaton and other places, and got good training, um, but a training that was not full enough to capture the Latin American reality. So they went back you know, to minister through IFES or university in these revolutionary contexts in Latin America. And their students said, okay, well, you're presenting this gospel to me, you know, kind of like the one you probably hear in the United States. What, how, how does it apply to my revolutionary situation, right? When my aunt just got disappeared, my dad got killed, and they met in Cochabamba, Bolivia, and had, you know, this group of about 30 um, 
theologians and and de and develop this movement of mission integral and this theology of of what we call holistic mission right the missional movement you hear about that right um Lausanne and you know all those things urbana um but what makes me really proud is that that framework of integral mission holistic mission it has those roots <laughs> um and it's been claimed in the united states but a lot of times that credit is not given to, to its origins um and yeah so mission integral one of the great frameworks that they have is like the gospel is like a plane with two wings and i know i'm preaching to the choir you know this both of you better than me but for the audience the gospel is like a plane with two wings one wing is our personal relationship with god the other wing is our is our you know social relationships to our neighbor um one wing is the proclamation of the, the verbal proclamation of the gospel. The second wing is the embodiment of the gospel through works of justice and mercy and compassion. And if you don't have both wings, then the plane doesn't fly. And I think in the United States right now, in the church, you tend to have planes with one wing, right? either just the personal or just the social. And that's why so many young Latinos are jumping out of the plane, because they intuit that something's wrong. It's going to crash. A plane with one wing crashes. Let, let me ask this, related to Misión Integral and the other pieces, Robert, you, you do a good job of highlighting the importance of the church to justice movements, to, to really demonstrate the fact that the church has historically been involved here. The Brown Church, to use the, the term that you introduced to the conversation in the book, has been a part of this for a very long time. Uh, I, I suspect that you anticipate some um, opposition, some objections to the book. Uh, you know, what's one that stands out to you that you anticipate you see coming? And how do you intend to respond to some of those objections? Um, is your question, is your question about opposition related to centering the church? Yeah, centering the church or even the concepts that you introduce in the book related to justice. So I think that I have a different, I have a, I, I should, I have a positionality that is different than most, I think. So I spend 90% of my time in secular activist circles, right? As a professor of Chicana, Chicano, and Central American Studies at UCLA, right? Um, in secular activist circles. And I've done that for 15 years, right? In that time, I've learned so much, right? From my colleagues, from uh, secular activist groups. And so I'm really grateful for that. But at the same time, I know that that's, the end result that I see, although there's a lot of good there and I learn a lot, it's not the beloved community of Jesus. It's not the end goal is not the beloved community of everyone of every ethnic and cultural group, you know, as sisters and brothers. Right? And so I feel this, and this is to be honest, like I feel a lot of concern in my heart for young Latinos, Latinas who are understandably really hurt by the local church. And those hurts are, are legitimate and, and, but who romanticize the world of secular activism. When I've lived in that world for the last 15 years, and I know that that, I've just seen it go south so many times. And so that's my pastoral heart. I just, so if, if someone opposes centering the church, I would just say lovingly, you're, you're right. Like those, those, those abuses, like the story that I shared, that's totally legitimate, right? And the horrible things that have happened in some of our Latino churches, like abuse that goes, 
without justice, oh gosh, my heart breaks so much, right? And I pray for God's justice. But that being said, um, the church is God's central instrument. And, and I hope that through this process of, of deconstructing and reconstruction, we can come to a place where the church is healthy because that is where the greatest transformation takes place. Right? Um, so in, in terms of, of, of that, that potential critique, it's like, I get it. Oh my gosh, the suffering is so real and my heart breaks. But at the same time, I know that, that the kingdom of God is not the same as a 501c3. Preach. Preach. That's a, that's a beautiful uh, note to maybe conclude on, to, to remind us that the kingdom of God goes beyond our local expressions of the church, our nonprofits, and that, and that God's kingdom is a kingdom of justice. That in fact, the gospel is the solution to a lot of the woes of this world, that God is transforming the cosmos. He's not just saving souls as some of our uh, evangelistic brothers might, might forget in some cases. Let me say this, Robert, it's been a gift to, to have a conversation with you about the book. It's been an absolute delight for me. There's so many more questions that I want to ask you, more things that I want to talk about. But, but for the interest of time, we'll have to wrap up here. I do want to say I want to thank IVP for allowing us to uh, uh, read the book, to, to sponsor this episode, and to do something really cool for our audience. And so we're going to be doing a giveaway where we're going to give away five copies of the book to listeners. Here are the rules for you to get the access to the book. What you want to do is you want to post your favorite quote from this interview with Robert uh, to Instagram or Twitter, whichever one of those two platforms, using hashtag Mestizo Podcast and hashtag Brown Church. Okay, so again, uh, you want to post your favorite quote using those two hashtags, hashtag Mestizo Church, hashtag Brown Church. You also have to tag at World Outspoken and at Ivy Press. That's the, the publishing house that published the book. At World Outspoken, at Ivy Press. And you must live in the continental US to be eligible. Sorry, guys, that's part of shipping costs. It just is what it is. But we'll give away five, uh, five books. We're going to announce the winners on Instagram Live on May 19th. So be paying attention then. Make sure that you're uh, looking forward uh, for the book and, and for the announcements of the winners. You don't want to miss that. So let me just repeat that in case you list, missed it. Post your favorite quote using hashtag Mestizo Podcast, hashtag Brown Church. Tag at World Outspoken at IV Press. You have to live in the continental US. And on May 19th, we'll announce the winner. For those of you that don't win the book, if you still want to purchase the book, I really recommend it. Uh, IVP is offering a 30% discount using a promo code, which we'll share on our social media once we have it. And so be looking out for that promo code so you can also access the book. They're going to give us a 30% discount. Take advantage of that. Uh, my grandmother, speaking of dichos, she would say, I guess I love it mientras uno pueda, right? So get the book while you can. Uh, and then, Robert, if I can, in the book itself, you... Um, you kind of reframe Soy Joaquin. It's, an, it's a famous poem from the Chicano movement. You reframe it as a, as a poem dedicated to the Brown Church. I thought that we would conclude with that poem. Yes. Uh, I think it would be a beautiful way to inspire and send off the listeners uh, to remind them that the Brown Church is alive and well. Would you be willing to share that poem with our listeners? I'd be honored. Thank you. Thank you. I am the Brown Church. God calls me mija, mijo. Brown, black, white, even yellow are all within me. When black and white come to talk, my voice is not heard. I am not invited to the table. 
I share much with my black sisters and brothers, yet my voice is distinct. I long, I cry out to be heard for who I am, the brown church. Yo soy Montesino, gritando in 1511, the conquest is opposed to Christ. Y Bartolomé de las Casas, whose eyes like Moses were open to the suffering of his people and never looked back. Yo soy Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. My heart burns for the treasures of wisdom which are hidden in Christ. Though machismo assails me, aunque está bloqueado el camino, I do not relent. Yo soy Catarina de San Juan, la China poblana. Stolen from Asia, enslaved by Spanish masters, I find freedom as the bride of Christ. I too hold the keys of the kingdom. Yo soy Padre Antonio Martinez de Nuevo México. Aunque robaron a Aslan, I know no nation holds a manifest destiny to decimate the people of another, also beloved of God. In the time of Jim Crow, they called me wetback, beaner, spick, and sent me to Mexican schools. Yet I am Mendez, Bernal, Perales, Galleros. My children are not cows. You cannot place them in a barn. Yo soy Mama Leo y Santos Elizondo, mujeres forged in tongues of fire. Nadie me detendrá, porque el Espíritu del Señor está sobre mí. I am Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. I was raised in the bosom of Abolita theology and know that the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of God. Unos años después, mis primos huyeron la tierra madre, the land of the Savior, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras, Centroamérica, Argentina, Peru, Bolivia, Brasil, y el resto de Sudamérica. Empujado por el huracán de violencia, guerrillas, Reagan, priest, all vied for me, yet on Christ my eyes were fixed. En Gutierrez, Boff y Romero, yo sé que el reino de Dios trae liberación, que el, que el Espíritu nos libera. Como protestantes, we also protested porque la ropa anglo-sajón strangled la buena nueva. Soy Padilla y Escobar, recobrando la misión integral del Señor. Yo soy los dos alas del mismo pájaro, puertorriqueño, New Yorkian, cubano y dominicano también. Though the colonizers have changed, the cries of Las Casas still ring strong in my ears. I am a dreamer, indocumentado, sin papeles, no human being is illegal. Jesus is mi refugio. I am a child of God. I now seek my voice, thoughts of God my own. I also am among the twelve. God calls me mija, mijo. I am the brown church.